Interpreting May 2003, Cape Town, South Africa Direct contact with my guides Between 2001 and 2003, I saw a couple of kinesiologists regularly. When I moved to Cape Town, I found one there. Thanks to kinesiology, I was sorting through not only dietary but also emotional problems. I stabilized, or at least got more in touch with what my real self truly wanted. One day, the kinesiologist suggested, you know, you can do this muscle testing by yourself. She showed me how to put the first finger of one hand through a loop made with my thumb and first finger on the other and to ask my own questions. When the loops stayed stuck together, that meant yes. When the loop opened, that meant no. I was fascinated by this because I love doing things by myself, and so I walked around for the next four months asking questions. Should I eat this? How much? Should I drink this? The answers seemed helpful. One day, I forgot my shopping list. I asked via my fingers to see if I'd get answers. Trying to apply divine guidance to every aspect of my life aligns me. I can face problems with a sense of strength, grace, and balance. So I asked, using my fingers, soap, a scrub brush, shampoo? The finger loop stayed intact, which means yes for me, on shampoo. I stopped in the middle of the sidewalk. Hold on here. Who am I talking to? Suddenly I felt nervous. My hands were shaking as I brought my fingers together again to ask, when I do muscle testing, am I talking to myself? The thumb and forefinger separated. No. The sun beat down on my head. I was standing on high-level road in Seapoint, in my jeans and t-shirt, carrying an empty shopping bag like an ordinary person, but feeling totally crazy. All of my Catholic education flooded into me. I asked, are you the devil? No. Well, I immediately thought, of course the devil would deny his own identity. Are you my guardian angel? A huge yes. Is there only one of you? No. Then I counted using my fingers and I arrived at eight. I had eight angels working with me. This was the moment when my relationship with my guides began. How did I know it wasn't the devil? It was touch and go at first. The advice since May had been helpful. I had prevented such problems as burning a pot on the stove, forgetting to pay a bill, speaking critically and hurting someone's feelings when I should have kept quiet. Yes, you could argue that of course the devil would appear to be helpful, but then would lead me astray. Well, now it has been four and a half years and we're still good. That first day I ran to my room and wrote down questions and answers. Like the journalist I was, I interviewed them, and I heard extensive information about who they were, who they had been. Actually, they said, they were guides rather than angels, a different species but with similar roles as messengers from God. They had each incarnated as people numerous times, but each gave only one name, totally unpronounceable, a string of consonants and vowels. They also talked about some of the work they were assigned to do with me. September 2003, Egypt, a voice in the desert. The whole month I journaled my ongoing dialogues with my guides. In September, I attended a Pioneers of Change conference in Egypt to do some video documenting work and meet up with people interested in sustainable development. I flew up there as a nonprofit filmmaker. In Egypt, I came out as a spirit guide interpreter and even ran a small session with two people attending on how to contact your own guides. This was my calling, to share what was happening to me and hopefully turn other people onto it. We got to Cairo and then to Dahab. The best part? Staying over two nights at a Bedouin camp in the Sinai Desert. While there, I was present to the conference but was also carrying on a simultaneous dialogue with my guides, using my fingers and asking questions. I discovered that there were limits to what I could ask. I couldn't ask about other people. For example, is my boyfriend missing me? I had to ask about things that were within my range of ability to influence. I couldn't ask about events too far in the future. How many children will I have? My fingers stiffened up, refusing to give a straight yes or no. The question had to concern the now. The camp consisted of several large cloth tents with thick rugs for floors. One patriarch lived there with an assortment of children. We slept in our sleeping bags on woven grass mats laid out under the stars. We woke up soon after the sun rose over the rock escarpments and ate boiled eggs and ate flatbread that our Bedouin hosts cooked over an open fire. No electricity or cell phone reception. No man-made electromagnetic radiation. I felt the place to be psychically clear. 
That's a difficult sensation to explain, but it's as if there's no static on the line. I felt fresh and alive. This was when my personal work as a spirit guide interpreter started. Since 1999 and the Vipassana Buddhist retreat in Sao Paulo, I had been meditating almost every day. In Egypt, on this conference at the Bedouin camp, I chose to meditate between sessions, sitting near my sleeping bag in a grove of desert trees. On the second morning, I was sitting under a date palm tree with a sarong draped over my face and shoulders to keep the flies away. It was about 10 o'clock. After meditating for about 15 minutes, I heard a strong, clear voice. Now you're going to help people. The external locution came through so clearly, I threw the cloth off my head and looked in its direction, five meters off the ground to my right. Only a palm tree. I asked, how? But there was no more. I felt excited but challenged, and I walked into the next meeting with a feeling of anticipation. We sat in a large circle as usual, about 40 of us from all over the world. The topic was, how can you keep your integrity while meeting fundraisers' expectations? It was a good question, one that had plagued Ashoka Fellows for a long time, and I tuned into the discussion, although I think I didn't add any new points. During that circle, I felt my fingers start to buzz, meaning you have a message. Using a checklist I'd developed in my head, I sorted through the possible topics. Learning, career, travel, family, health. The finger stopped on health. A new question based on what I'd heard while meditating. My health? Almost happy to answer, my fingers made the sign for no. Ah, somebody else? Someone in this room? Yes. I counted off the people around the circle until I reached a certain guy. I hardly knew his name, but the guides told me he was the one. And that's how I received a message, still using this technique of muscle testing from kinesiology, that I needed to approach this certain person at the conference. I walked across the woolen rugs of the big airy tent that served as our meeting room and asked if I could speak with him outside. All I said was, I have a message for you that you have a specific health problem and you need to see a Western doctor. His eyes filled with tears and I knew immediately that the message was accurate. He gritted his teeth. Nobody knows I have a problem. He was taken aback that the message would come to him so specifically and verbally. Where did you get that information? Hmm, now I was stumped. I had a hard time explaining it came from angels. He was a sensitive person. He asked more questions about the nature of his medical condition, and using a process of elimination, I was slowly able to give him the details he needed. He was still dubious about the angels. However, he somehow had the presence of mind to offer me coaching on the spot as to how to present a difficult message gently. I am so blessed he was the first recipient. The guides gave me a break until after lunch, and then I was directed to speak to a woman sitting by herself, writing in her journal. I have a message that I'm supposed to ask you about a problem in your love life. I kept it brief, not knowing how she would react, but she too began crying. She said, I'm in love with somebody from another country and another culture, and I don't know what to do. It was the central issue in her life at that moment. The guides gave her specific advice and, more importantly, hope. Word got out. People came over and asked me questions. We were in experimental mode. Again, I'm grateful to those people who were willing to suspend their disbelief, as I was only on day one of my practice. Pioneers are natural cooperative learners, and thanks to their participation, we came up with principles I still use to this day. For example, no background information. One particularly scientific man phrased his question as, should I do A or B and why? Forcing me to come up with specific vocabulary to prove that the guides knew what A and B represented. We figured out that each person has a set of guides who speak to them through me, probably with the assistance of my guides, since I could feel that the tones of communication were different from one person to another. The general message I heard over and over again was, you are loved. And often it was that simple message that got straight to them and touched them. The force of those words, in the context of information that only they could know, put them in a new place. I had interesting reactions from other participants there. I learned from each one. When I asked one guy if he wanted to give it a try, he said, no thank you, because I can talk to my angels on my own. That reminded me, and it still does, that my time as a go-between is only one instant in someone's life. Each person has his own way of prayer and contact. 
I respected his answer deeply, and I remained grateful for his straightforward response. September 2003, February 2004, Cape Town, South Africa. Personal effects. Back in South Africa, I stopped making documentary films and working for nonprofits. I told my fiancé about my new calling, and that caused more tension. We managed to take one more wonderful trip, this time to go snorkeling in Mozambique, but our differences were becoming irreconcilable. We were only roommates, but somehow I couldn't force myself to move out. It wasn't fun anymore. We didn't even eat meals together. At the bookstore, I received a message to buy Leslie Temple Thurston's book, Returning to Oneness, which offered exercises for clearing the chakras. I did the exercises and often found myself very emotional at the end of each one. Then I heard she was coming to Cape Town to give a seminar, and I signed up. Unfortunately, she was holding her seminar in the suburb of Stellenbosch, one hour by car away. One of my issues has always been transportation. I never got a South African driver's license, and I had a real block about it. And my fiancé didn't appreciate waking up early and driving me places. I would take the train, even though it meant twice the time. But on the morning of the seminar, my alarm didn't go off, and I woke up an hour late. I leaped out of bed and ran to the door, flung it open, and at that moment, a woman walked out of her own front door from the apartment facing ours. She must have just moved in. My waking up late panic fogged my vision, but she seemed clear and present. I asked her which direction she was driving, hoping that she could drop me at the train station. Miracle of miracles, she said, I'm going to a seminar in Stellenbosch by Leslie Temple Thurston. I'm a few minutes late. I just laughed. We entered the elaborate doorway of a building now used as a music academy and climbed a staircase made of hardwood from trees that no longer even grow in the Cape. Leslie Temple Thurston sat on the stage in a concert hall at the top of the stairs, a modern-day guru. A bit like Sai Baba, she does Darshan, a ceremony in which she allows God to shine through her. Thus, as we meditated, her face changed and revealed different divine aspects. I found the process a little frightening. Personally, I was battling with whether and how to leave my fiancé, and most of my meditation circled around that issue. The seminar broke for lunch, and instead of talking with the other participants, I took a walk around Stellenbosch. It had started to drizzle. Returning, I listened to the introduction to the second half about finding your own path, and I crossed my legs for the meditation section. Quickly, radiant light filled me from the crown of my head downward. I felt my spine rocking slightly. I absorbed the light. I inhaled the light. I digested the light. Calmly, I opened my eyes. Leslie Temple Thurston sat on her big chair, her eyes gracefully closed, her face happy, serene. I went back into my meditation, and tears came out of my eyes, unattached to any thought or emotion. I woke up again, this time beaming with joy. I was free. I could have left the seminar just then, but I waited till we all finished in an hour so I could catch a lift home with my neighbor. When she saw me at the doorway, her eyes widened. Wow, that must have really worked for you. You look so different. I told her I was ready to move out, and she kindly offered to help me move my stuff if I needed. February 2004, July 2005, South Africa, first days as a professional psychic. I opened my own office in a one-room cottage, and then I moved into it and slept there too. I transitioned into working full-time as a spirit guide interpreter with a lot of help from my guides, who gave me all kinds of advice about what kind of website to set up, what color scheme to choose. I felt like a representative of their organization on Earth. The cottage sat in Mowbray, a few miles south of central Cape Town. It was dim and still and peaceful like a chapel. I placed a piece of purple fabric on a shelf and put candles on that, and I burned frankincense there. Just a block away at a second-hand shop called Al's, I bought an old black trunk that looked as though it had arrived with the 1820s settlers. I also bought a used couch from Al, a narrow two-seater. The couch had so many people sit on it over the course of the year that the cushions were flat by the time I sold it. From the ceiling I hung beaded lamps commissioned from a local artisan, lavender beads that gave a quiet, holy light. A writing desk folded out from the wall like an ironing board. I put my prayer books and the biography of St. Teresa of Avila on a short wooden bookshelf. I spent time at the second-hand bookshop on Main Road in Mowbray, the Catholic one, with the attic full of encyclopedias. I remember the day I hung a silver sign on the gate of that cottage. Shannon Walbrand, Spirit Messages, www.spiritguidance.net.
To go blatantly public in this work contradicted incarnation after incarnation of women burnt at the stake. I was born into a world and a time that allowed me to share my gifts within society. I didn't have to live in a hut at the edge of the wood, but I wouldn't say that it was an easy path. How would I pay my bills? I joined a barter system called the Talent Exchange at talents.org.za, which has since gone international. Without using cash, you offer your services or goods. It's not a direct one-to-one swap, as in, I tune your piano, you paint my house. It's more like a general bank. When I offered readings, people came, and I accumulated talents like cash that I used then to buy lemons, olive oil, a haircut, a massage, and a rug. More importantly, the talent exchange gave me great exposure, and I met like-minded folks. Within five months, I had my first appearance on the radio, interviewed by John Richards on SAFM. I had met him while organizing a press conference for Ashoka, and I felt he'd be sympathetic. He talked to me for a whole hour on the radio, though I was just explaining the work. I didn't take call-ins. Those times were financially challenging. I watched every penny. I bought no new clothes for six months. I used the library. I walked instead of taking the combi minivan taxis, which were only three rand each, and I lived on rice and potatoes. The business flourished, yet I was lonely. I felt as though I were a monk living in my own one-person monastery, my own cave. When I wasn't seeing clients, I would meditate for up to six hours every day. I would just eat, just pray, just work. I didn't have balance. That changed slowly as I increased my trust of myself. I had to learn to take back my own free choice, my own free will. I learned that I could ask for guidance, but I didn't have to ask for guidance on whether I should tie my shoes or wear jeans or enjoy a cup of tea. It took time to figure out that I could allow myself, whether I was a normal person, maybe even whether I deserved to lead a normal existence. Part of that strangeness came from a fear that I would damage or lose the gift, as if I had done something to merit it in the first place. When staying in a hotel, I wouldn't let myself watch TV. Not that there are too many good programs on anyway, but it made me feel almost sick to turn on the television. I felt it might poison me. I didn't socialize. It brought me right back to kindergarten when I couldn't relate to other people. I had a hard time finding peers because in a way I was judgmental. If someone had a glass of wine with dinner, I would feel overwhelmed with a feeling of bad vibration. I could only deal with having tea in the afternoon with one person at a time. 2004, Cape Town, South Africa, Dark Nights of the Soul. There were some dark times in the beginning. One client a day, then a holiday time would come around and business would dry up. I didn't have enough money to get on the internet. I was always wanting to do research, look things up, post messages from the guides on my spiritguidance.net website, and also send emails to my family in the U.S. In Seapoint, there was an all-night cyber cafe, and they charged a once-off fee of 20 rand from midnight until 6 a.m. I'd take a combi from Mowbray to town, then another from the station to Seapoint, and I'd have to kill time from sunset until midnight, so I'd go to the La Vie Café and order a pot of tea and read a book for as long as I could stand it. Then I'd go work on the internet and pull an all-nighter, with my head sometimes crashing into the keyboard from tiredness. The hardest part was in the morning, because they'd kick us off at 6 in the morning, but it's still dark in the winter. The shops aren't open and the combis don't run frequently, so I'd walk toward town. I had my winter coat on, but the sun hadn't risen yet, utterly alone. Protected, yes, in a divine sense, but disconnected from other human beings and from human life. I made a few terrible mistakes in those early days. It's hard for me to admit this, but I am a person and not an angel. And something in me still wants not to think of myself as a weirdo. So to lighten up, I overrode my distaste for bad vibes and went out with a few people who invited me for drinks. I didn't know them well, and they didn't know what I did for a living. I sat next to a man at a bar and we chatted for a minute. I was drinking whiskey straight, and by the second one I had lost my inhibitions and my judgment. I could see he was gay, and I felt I had a message for him. You're in love with somebody who lives in a different city, I said, and you don't trust him. His head whipped around and he stared at me. He was still relatively sober. How do you know that? I'm a psychic, I said proudly. Now this was going against all my policies. He hadn't asked for help, I was drunk, and worst, I was using my gift to gain social prestige. What else can you tell me, he said. Well, you can trust him. He does like you back, and you should invite him to come down to Cape Town. He's in Joburg, right? Right, he confirmed, but the whole thing was not sitting well. 
I couldn't tell him any more information, and he stopped meeting my eye. He turned his body away from me and stared into the mirror. I drank more and more until we shifted the party to somebody's house. I, I still don't know where. I was loopy. Holding court in the kitchen with people I had never met, I was pounding my fist on the countertop, insisting, I am a psychic. I'm telling you, it's true. When my bar companion walked in, I pointed my finger at him and said, He'll tell you. Go on. Tell them what I told you. Of course, I had not a clue that he was in a relationship with one of the people in the kitchen. Through my drunken swirl, I knew I was breaking a social barrier when he shot me a glare. Minutes later, I was walking home in the gale of a cape night, but it wasn't the sharp wind that made the bitter tears course down my face. 2004 South Africa. Media opens waves. A big break came through East Coast Radio in Durban, thanks to my friend Margot Saffer, whose good friend worked for the breakfast show. Whereas SAFM had been a straight interview, East Coast asked me if I could take questions from callers. I said yes, even though I'd never done it before. We ran the phones for 15 minutes. The lines were jammed. The presenters looked shocked at the number and intensity of the callers. But what felt odd to me was that they wouldn't meet my eyes. Something inexplicable was going on in the studio. During a commercial break, one of them finally turned to me and said, when you close your eyes and get an answer, how are you doing that? Ah, they were a bit freaked out. I told them we all have angels and guides who are God's messengers. Just then, a man in a suit came through the studio door. We had 30 seconds left before going back on air. He called out at me in a loud voice, what's wrong with me? I felt my chest tighten and my throat close, and I told him the message. Your heart is strained, and you must take the medicine. Don't skip. The man pulled on his tie with satisfaction. That's what my doctor said. Right. And burst back out of the studio. According to the announcers, that was a top dude at the station. On the air, I had given out my cell phone number for private readings. When I staggered out into the station's foyer, totally ungrounded and dizzy, but elated, my voicemail box was full and kept filling up as I answered the phone. That one radio program gave me enough appointments with word-of-mouth recommendations that followed for three months of going back and forth to Durban. 2004-2005, Durban, South Africa, a royal life and a royal test of faith. Thanks to my appearance on the radio, I returned a few months later and checked into the most famous hotel I could find, the Royal, smack across from City Hall. So glamorous and deluxe compared to my little monk's cottage. The chandeliers, the marble floors, the velvet, the carpets overwhelmed me. I felt like a princess. I checked into one of the rooms overlooking the waterfront. That view, as the bay lit up at night and the container ships moved with glacial grace across the horizon, thrilled me. I loved the air in Durban also. The humidity curled my hair and the warm weather cheered me up. I saw clients in the room after it had been made up for the day. I would meet each one by the hostess stand at the entrance to the coffee shop near the big doors on Smith Street. As I led the client back to the lifts, I had to ask each one not to give me any background information as we walked, which would have been the natural thing to do, to make small talk. In the elevator up to the 17th floor, I would lead the conversation and give her the introduction to the session to keep her from saying, like, I drove all the way in from Howick where my husband has a horse farm. There's a story about me staying in the Royal that demonstrates what kinds of tests of faith I was undergoing. The third time in Durban, I was guided to check in there again. I wasn't scheduled to be on the radio. These were bookings from months before. I had one day's worth of readings booked, and that's ten people. But my guides asked me to check in for six days. To talk about the math for a moment, the sessions I had booked would have given me 2,000 rand at 200 rand per reading at that time. Six days at the Royal cost 3,600 rand. I had no extra money on me and no credit card. I was going to have to earn the money to pay for the hotel. I finished the first day, and several of the clients said they would recommend friends or relatives. In fact, only three people called, still a thousand rand short. Over the course of the six days, I ate the Royal's famous buffet breakfast of smoked salmon, egg white omelets made to order, crumpets and cream and jam and hazelnuts, the richest food I could stomach at seven in the morning, I knew that was all I'd be eating for the day. It was, again, a life out of balance. By the morning of the fifth day, I was in a panic. I had bookings for nine o'clock and ten o'clock. 
I was standing at the entrance to the cafe waiting, but neither of the clients showed up. I gazed into the refrigerated case and watched the lemon meringue pies and chocolate fudge cakes spin past, longing to order a dessert to make myself feel better. I knew I should save every rand for the final hotel bill. From the front foyer, when my morning clients didn't arrive, I took the posh mirrored elevator up to my room and started sobbing. I put my forehead to the carpet and wept. I said over and over, God, please help me. God, please help me. What am I doing here? Just then, the phone rang. A client from the day before. Do you have any openings for this afternoon? I want four members of my family to come for individual sessions. I wiped my eyes and sniffled. I can't even express how grateful I was to that woman, to God, and to the universe for fulfilling its promise. It wasn't only that I had been rescued. I was grateful that I had been tested, that someone cared enough to put me through this test. I was being shown that there is a way forward and that I should trust and put everything in the hands of God. When I checked out of the hotel, the amount in my wallet covered exactly six nights hotel plus the taxi to the airport to the rand. I didn't even have a tip for the taxi driver. 2005, Johannesburg, South Africa. Commuting city to city. Starting in 2005, radio appearances led me to fly up and down so much to Joburg that I booked in for discounted long stays in Melville at a bed and breakfast called the Melville Turret. It's still there, although it has since changed owners. It's on the corner of 9th Street and 2nd Avenue. It was the perfect location because I could walk to the shops, walk down to the cafes, a safe village feeling, university-oriented. I could pop down to Campus Square, shop at the Woolworths or the Pick and Pay, so I thought that was a good deal. The turret let me work out of their guest lounge so I didn't have to practice from the same room where I stayed, a blessing. The guest lounge had bookcases and two wingback chairs, a small table for the client's notebook, and a sofa where I took catnaps between sessions. The manager took excellent care of me and made me fried eggs for breakfast, and we got along well. I liked practicing from there. 2006 South Africa, Radio Psychic Nationwide By February 2006, I had been on many radio stations throughout South Africa. I'd been a guest on Prim Ready's A Word on the Home, Kate Turkington's Believe It or Not programs, both on Radio 702 out of Joburg and simulcast in Cape Town. I'd been on SAFM's Durban After Dark with Devi Sankri Govinder, and then Monica Farrell, and then Rahana Dada. I'd been on Lotus FM, and I'd been on the Lisa Chait Show in Cape Talk. In smaller cities, I was a guest on the community radio station MEFM, broadcasting in Port Elizabeth, as well as the Plettenberg Bay station. I'd been interviewed on the television program Spirit Sunday on SABC, and I was also featured in Real Magazine and even in the Financial Mail. While in Durban, I was a guest on the Muslim radio station that runs during the holy month of Ramadan. That was an unexpected honor. 2006, Johannesburg, South Africa. I love Kaya. In early 2006, I got a call from Lance Claussen, the producer of Live and Switched On, the morning radio program at Kaya FM in Gauteng. Kaya, the Afropolitan radio station, was the one that I listened to when visiting Johannesburg. Marketing departments call the Kaya listeners black diamonds, meaning educated, employed black people who are leaders in business and government. In late 2007, their rating was number one in Joburg at 1.2 million listeners. When Lance called, he asked if I would stop in and be a guest. He had been listening to SAFM before he fell asleep, and he had caught me on Durban After Dark, which ran after 10 p.m. I went into Kaya for a 7 a.m. slot and felt an immediate affinity with the presenters Pat Cash and Ed Jordan. Love at first sight. They made it a cinch for me to do what I do. I had fun. People called in, asked questions, and their guides answered quickly and accurately, and we were really rolling. I was interacting with Pat and Ed, we were laughing together, and the time just flew. I was on for about 10 minutes, and it felt like a minute and a half. When I walked out, Lance gave me a hug and said he would call me after their recap meeting. Would you consider coming back? I shot back in a heartbeat. I thought it was awesome. That's how I came to be on Kaya once a week. Now I have a special routine on Thursday mornings. I get up at 6.30, I thank God, I take a shower, I eat a banana, and my cab driver from Rose Taxi is waiting downstairs by 7.15. We drive to the BP garage on Empire in Bromfontein, and I pick up an espresso. Then we drive across the Nelson Mandela Bridge through Newtown to the Kaya studio on Mary Fitzgerald Square. 
I'm usually there by 7.25. I always ask the cab driver to play Kaya on the radio, and most cab drivers do play so anyway. When I go in, the guys are on the air, talking and laughing with each other and the rest of the morning show crew. I sit outside, I'm quiet for a moment, and I gather myself. I say hi to Lance and give him a quick hug, then I go into the booth and put on the headphones. Pat introduces the segment, and we take calls. The calls that come in from Kaya listeners are truly about what's going on in South Africa. It's such a big audience, and the people are bright, ready for action, and they want to make a difference in their lives and the lives of others. My favorite Kaya question of all time is, should I start a foundation? Because it was only a few years ago that all aid went into South Africa from abroad, and now the people are doing it for themselves. March 2006, Cape Town, South Africa. Sangoma says, filmmaker or healer. I had been missing the art of documentary filmmaking, so I thought of a new movie that would serve the highest good of spirit guidance while allowing me to access missing creativity. I called it Apprentice Healer Seeks the Masters. The idea was based on a concept I'd come up with while playing the flow game, a goal-setting exercise designed by my friend Karsten Ohms from Denmark, part of two dynamic organizations, the Chaos Pilots. I had met Karsten in Egypt at Pioneers of Change. In the flow game, you shape a little canoe out of modeling clay. Then you move your canoe around a big board. At the beginning, you set out a tentative personal plan, and mine had been to interview and film shamans around the world. As you complete the circle on the game board, other players challenge you with suggestions and ideas and encouragement. Why don't you start now? You have a camera until you want to jump into making your plan a reality. What's particularly touching to me was that we played the flow game in Cairo before we went to the Bedouin camp in the desert, where I received my message to become a spirit guide interpreter. I made a list of countries where I wanted to film. China, Brazil, India, South Africa, and the United States. I had never been to China, and I wanted to go back to India and Brazil, and I knew I'd end up going back to the U.S. to see my family. A shaman in South Africa can be several things. I chose to visit a Sangoma, a trained spiritual conduit who throws bones onto a mat and interprets messages from the ancestors. The first shoot took place in Kailicha, a township outside of Cape Town. I got to Kailicha with the help of a 20-something English-speaking Sangoma in training, Carl Bavulele Makosi, who accompanied me and assisted in filming. We wouldn't have made it without Nigel Mentor, a cab driver and more, who always takes care of me whenever I'm in the Cape and is a person wholly dedicated to safety and kindness. We all pulled up to the Sangoma's two-bedroomed cinder block house, neatly plastered, and a horseshoe hooked onto the gate for good luck. The Sangoma, named Gogo Bongani Machoba, welcomed us, gave us tea, and accepted my gift of wild rice from America, the traditional food of Native Americans from my part of the country. She was about 45, dressed in a traditional black and red skirt, wearing multiple beaded necklaces, bracelets, and anklets. With Carl rolling the video, we stepped into Gogobongani Machoba's healing room, a clean tin shack behind her house. Then we prayed for protection, lit candles, and she threw the bones. She chanted a long song. With its frequent line breaks, it sounded to me like an epic poem. We knelt on her grass mat floor, clapping and gazing at the bones she had thrown. She kept chanting. Bongani told me, you're a healer. Your ancestors want you to stick with your true calling as a healer and not mess around with other jobs. I told her, I'm about to make a film about healing. Could I combine the two? And she reluctantly said it was negotiable, but her face half scowled as she talked about it. Hard to believe I could be skeptical, but it crossed my mind that maybe this Sangoma was prejudiced toward the work of healing and was biased against filmmaking. But I didn't know how to prove that it was my ancestor speaking to me. You will travel, and when you travel, you will help people find healing. That's good, I thought. She continued, it is your maternal line. Go to the grave of your grandmother, light candles, and speak with them. Ask them for their help. At the end of the session, she dug among many hidden things behind a trunk and pulled out a meter of cloth. She just showed it to me. She didn't give it to me. This is the cloth you should use when you speak to your ancestors. Keep it with you. Wear it over your shoulders. I eyeballed the print briefly. Carl said he would take me to the Sangoma supply shop to purchase some. We thanked the Sangoma and left, her messages ringing in my ears. Not make the film? Hmm. Nigel drove us to the township shopping center, and Carl beelined straight to the shop. A hundred different patterns of cloth, 
hung from the ceiling and lay in racks. He chose the right one, and I bought three meters. I bought him a few strings of beads as a thank you. I returned to my office in Claremont and spread the cloth on the table where I lit my candles. I needed to process the Sangoma's reading. I felt a wave come over me, a wave of new awareness. I was staring at the print. I had thought it was crosses or anchors, I wasn't sure, and I finally saw it was a pattern of oak leaves and acorns. The Sangoma had said that the messages were coming from my maternal line. My mother's last name is Quirk, from the Latin for quercus, which means oak, oak tree. My grandmothers and my great-grandmothers were working with me. They wanted me to be a healer. I cried then, sitting on the floor of my office, I believed. The Sangoma was a human filter, but she was transmitting an important message. Okay, I would take my ancestors' advice. I wouldn't push for the filmmaking beyond what I had already said I'd do. It would just become a hobby, not a second career. May 2006, Tzvat, Israel, the conversion message. I met my friend Margot for a coffee in Cape Town and told her about my documentary project. Margot is 12 years younger than I am, bossy in the best of ways. Ever since she had helped me get on the radio in Durban, I had listened to all of her advice. She raised one finger in the air and said words which would ricochet my life in an unexpected direction. Well, you must also be going to Israel. No, Margot, I hadn't planned on going to Israel. You can go to Israel and meet my South African friend, Guy. He's been living in Tzfat, the home of Jewish mysticism. He is a filmmaker, and he also knows plenty of shamans and healers. Within days, I was booked to spend two weeks in Jerusalem, Tzfat, and Tel Aviv. The guesthouse owner in Tzfat understood my work and agreed to set up reading appointments. She said the people there would be interested, since Tzfat attracts spiritually-minded folks. I knew no Hebrew beyond Shalom, and even less about the country, its history, or its conflicts. Since I was bringing my video camera and shooting a chapter of my documentary, I called the South African Broadcasting Company, SABC, to pitch an idea to help pay for my trip. Could I film an expat South African and interview him about his spiritual path? The TV program Spirit Sunday agreed to pay me enough for a five-minute interview to cover the cost of my flight. On the last day of April, I flew to Israel. I went in as a staunch Catholic and left as a convert to Judaism. A great surprise, I had never considered actually converting to another religion. I had always respected and admired and even studied the practices of other religions and philosophical systems, and that had been enough. Looking back into my childhood, I see some early signs. I had been intrigued by Judaism in my teens, and I had read all of Chaim Potok's books, starting with The Chosen. When the film Masada had appeared on TV— that's the story of the heroes who rebel against King Herod and commit mass suicide. I cried for hours afterwards. I read The Diary of Anne Frank and other books with Jewish themes. Because I had attended a Catholic school, high school, and university, I didn't have much social exposure until I was an adult. After college, I met and lived with thoughtful, intellectual Jewish people, like a co-teacher in Slovakia, a co-teacher in Rio, and a bookstore clerk in Minneapolis all with different takes on Judaism and Zionism, ranging from Marxist to secular to Orthodox. Now I was in the Holy Land, and I had two assignments, interview this South African filmmaker and find healers. Guy was quite an easy interview because he had been on my side of the camera. He walked me around his Jerusalem neighborhood, Nachlaot, pointing out scenic alleyways and good views. He was keen to do the interview because he was promoting his own film called Universal Face, a mixture of What the Bleep Do We Know and Koyaniskatsi, a beautiful montage of images and Jewish Kabbalistic philosophy. Universal Face moved me deeply, and I wanted to know more. What was Kabbalah? What could Judaism offer me? Guy did know many shamans and healers. After our interview, he gave me a list of people to meet and put me on the bus to Tzvat, the center of Kabbalah, three hours north of Jerusalem. On that bus, I met my own personal prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah, it is said, will announce the coming of the Messiah. Until that time, he appears to people to communicate important messages, and one should always be ready to greet him in the face of a stranger. That's why Jews set an extra plate at the table on Passover to welcome the prophet. My Elijah, if that's who he was, looked like an 80-year-old rabbi from New Jersey. Thick glasses, sparse gray curls under a black velvet yarmulke, and an ill-fitting suit. He had a pleasant smile, and I grinned back at him. Then began the deluge. 
He talked to me, or at me, since he was deaf, and he would not stop. An hour outside of Tzfat, he asked, Are you Jewish? Catholic. He kept quiet for about 30 seconds. Then he asked if I was married. I said, Not yet, but I'm sure God has a plan. This he heard. He began a long speech. It went on for the remainder of our trip, an hour. He repeated himself over and over again until I had to gaze out the window at the low mountains and green fields, but I couldn't stop his words from entering my brain. Here's his speech. I have been thinking. You're quite beautiful, and I'd like to marry you. Of course, I'm not allowed to convert you, since Judaism doesn't go out and convert people, but I'd like to marry you. Maybe you could convert to Judaism. I think you should. Over and over, with slight variations. At first, I tried to protest, but he couldn't hear me, so he kept singing the same tune. I got off at Svat and waved a hasty goodbye to my Elijah. Funny, as I disembarked, he hardly looked at me. He just stared straight ahead as if it had never happened. Some fiancé, eh? His message had been sent, and he didn't need to say anything more. My first impression of Tzfat was of a castle on a hill, all built from one kind of stone. The buildings have adjoining walls and blue shuttered windows and blue doors, so it's hard to tell where one house ends and the next one begins. I arrived as the sun was setting, casting a glow over the masonry until the whole village emanated golden light. Historically, the great Jewish spiritual minds of Europe congregated here in the 1500s and wrote of the hidden meanings in the Torah. The word Kabbalah comes from the Hebrew root K-B-L, meaning receive, because the insights were first received, even perhaps channeled, rather than taught and passed down through scholarly tradition. I stayed in a guesthouse run by a young family. As promised, the proprietress had arranged clients for me, but I was free until after lunch. So I spent that morning walking around a park on a hill in the middle of town. The hill is called the Citadel, and it's where the Romans encamped. Tzvat has been ruled by the Romans, the Muslims, and the Crusaders, and now the Jews. That multiplicity appealed to me, and I decided to meditate there. Whenever I get stuck on a serious question, I meditate and wait for guidance. If it comes from an unexpected direction, all the better. In the bright midday sun, climbing Citadel Hill, I contemplated, what had the prophet on the bus meant? Certainly I wasn't to marry him in particular. What did it mean to marry? I sat and sang there, and I made little piles of rocks and sticks. I watched the birds fly from one tall cypress tree to another. I felt connected to that place, and I knew Tzvat would bring me important movement forward. I felt that the right way for me would be to study Judaism. When I came down the hill, I had lunch with the guesthouse owners and poured out my heart. She listened sympathetically and said, Yes, Tzfat does this to people. Good thing you're going to meet with some of our local healers. The week filled rapidly with spirit guide interpretation appointments and with low-key interviews of healers and teachers. I met all the people on my list and was touched by their devotion and creativity. Lovingly, they welcomed me into their homes, gave me tea, answered my questions, and opened up the path. I attended a lecture by a local painter who specializes in Kabbalistic art, especially the Tree of Life. I also interviewed another artist who puts on paper the sounds of the shofar horn blown on the Day of Atonement. A Chinese medicine specialist examined me and did healing work that increased my yin, that is, my ability to become a vessel. He said that keeping Shabbat, the weekly day of rest, would probably be very beneficial to me. Another healer did an energy treatment on me in her library, surrounded by all that written wisdom, being healed by one of the people of the book, as the Jews are known, I went into a deep trance state. When I emerged, my hand moved of its own accord and pointed to a thick yellow book on the shelf. She took it from the shelf and handed it to me, explaining that it was called the Zohar and that it was the main text of the Kabbalah. That same teacher took me to a ritual bath called the Mikveh and gave me a Hebrew name. I'll always be grateful to the people of Tzvat, who shared so openly and so caringly. In everything I learned, I saw my own values reflected and deepened, magnified. This was what I had been seeking. Judaism, as I saw it there in Tzvat, was a way of life that constantly referred to the Creator with respect and intimacy. Yet it wasn't an isolated, ascetic, monastic way of life. People interacted and worked together and had ordinary family lives with tribes of children. Study was valued highly, and adults gathered to learn together. The Sabbath was honored and the whole place shut down. 
not toward a vacuum of purpose as I had felt in small-town America on a Sunday afternoon, but to get to the real work of being human, praying, eating, and playing together as a family and with friends. The purpose of this way of life matched my own inner goals so completely that I was ready to pack up and move there. But I wasn't Jewish yet. I returned to Johannesburg, a busy profession, an apartment, and friends. I called up the local Jewish authorities and set up a meeting, telling the rabbi, I want to become Jewish. 2006-2008, Johannesburg, South Africa, putting the job into Joburg. What I learned from working at various wellness centers was, it's normal to be a healer. Working on my own, I'd get lonely. Interacting with clients all day can be draining. But whenever I practiced from a center with other healers, I always felt more at ease. It's now closed, but the wellness house Linden was a five-bedroom home that the owner Louise converted into a lovely healing space. The garden in the back became my green refuge to rest between clients, and the hub where we practitioners worked on each other, freely when asked, with love, was definitely the kitchen. I'd come in to pour myself a cup of hot water, and Charles, the shamanic masseur, would perceive immediately that I was burning out. He'd place a hand on my shoulder, and Reiki energy would shoot through me. Patricia drew angel cards, her own angelic light shining so brightly that I sometimes couldn't look at her directly. Michelle would forecast star charts for all of us, particularly when Mercury went retrograde and all communications broke down. Yes, this is why your cell phones aren't working. Camaraderie Deluxe. I only moved away from the wellness house because my guide suggested I live closer to my apartment in Rosebank. I think they wanted me to walk to work for the exercise, and it's true. I did keep calmer because of my daily 20-minute hike. On the corner of Jan Smuts Avenue and Smith Street, between Rosebank and Dunkeld, there's a big 1930s house with a gray slate wall, the Holistic Medical Center. I rented a room where I practiced for a year, starting in October 2006. There was a physio and a nutritionist and a homeopath, and the lady next to my office does colonic irrigation. My first day, she stopped in and with a wicked grin said, please excuse the screaming. <laughs> Luckily, the walls are thick. When I had an intuition that the center was going to undergo a shift in owners, I moved to a similar healing space called the Melrose Park Natural Pharmacy on the corner of Athol Oaklands and Corlett Drive, just next door to the glitzy shopping center of Melrose Arch. I ate lunch among the rich and glamorous with their big shiny cars. What I learned from these annual moves was that clients would find me, work would flow in, and everything was progressing along just fine. In Cape Town, Lara answered the cell phone and took my bookings. She's a lovely, dynamic, and optimistic person. Her first response to anything new has always been, brilliant, it's going to work out perfectly. If she weren't so organized and firm with the clients, I'd probably have hired her as my life coach. 2007, Johannesburg, South Africa, Occupational Hazards I started feeling weird, and I couldn't figure it out. My longtime standby, organic green tea, tasted moldy, no matter which brand I tried. Beef meatballs had the texture of sand. I would look at clients and dislike them instantly, and I had a hard time controlling my temper when they didn't understand a message. Then I started disliking my neighbors, and then even people whom I considered friends. Instead of a face, all I could see was a flat surface, and their kind words sounded hollow and false. But this problem was mine, not theirs. A colleague of mine suggested I go see a healer she knew, so I phoned and met with Craig in a distant suburb of Johannesburg. He walked me to a nearby park. We sat in the grass, and after he listened to my symptoms, he concluded, Yes, you have entities attached to you. We're sitting outside so that when I exorcise them from you, they'll go into the earth instead of into someone's house or office. Now sit very still and close your eyes as I take you into a visualization. With that, he talked me through seeing various colors and flames surrounding me, banishing the entities that had attached to me like sticky jellyfish. I could see them finally, big gummy parasites, transparently gray. They were sucking my life force out of me and draining my ability to see the good. Craig told me to cast them off and mentally insist they go away, now. The process with Craig's guidance took about 20 minutes. I finished and opened my eyes and the park glowed with life. Every blade of grass waved toward the sun. The wind felt soft on my face. I grinned at Craig, but to my surprise, he looked pretty crabby. Shannon, you let this happen. 
which habit do you have to change in order for them not to come back? I, I shrugged. I was so clean and happy. He shook his head. Think, what are you addicted to? I started to feel a bit crushed. Here I was, not smoking, not doing drugs, not drinking alcohol, eating fairly well. I offered, um, coffee? He scoffed. It's not that simple. It's an ego addiction. How about this one? Drama. I frowned at Craig. I know people who consistently leave their passports at home and discover it halfway to the airport and break the speed limit to make their plane on time. People who break up with their boyfriends once a month and cry they'll never go back, but then they walk right back into the same trap. People who can't wait to tell you how their stepmother misbehaved again, but who won't dismantle the relationship. I hadn't been like that for several years. I never phoned anybody and sobbed anymore. Craig peered more closely at me. He was an intuitive practitioner, after all. Do you wash your hands and say a prayer before and after every client? Mm, nope. Well, why not? Uh, it's boring. Boring to do the same thing over and over, hour after hour? He didn't look impressed. In fact, he folded his arms across his chest. Shannon, you're leaving yourself way too open. You're picking up crap from your clients, and you think it's interesting to be sick? Get it together. Make a routine and stick to it. I sighed. He continued, here's the answer. Be boring. We walked back up the suburban road to the car. I looked at the houses, all painted the same cream color, and imagined the bankers and merchants who lived inside. They watched television. They followed sports teams. They wore matching clothes. This was exactly the mediocrity I hated. Was this what Craig meant? To have health and peace of mind, did I have to go suburban? How? I'd struggled for years to attain this dramatic, brilliant international life, and he wants me to give that up? Our tennis shoes made no noise on the asphalt street. Craig read my mind. Exercise, diet, meditation, cleansing yourself before and after clients. That's what I'm talking about. Just do it. You are a grown-up. 2006-2007, Johannesburg, South Africa, my year of keeping kosher. It is the policy of the Beit Din, literally House of Law, the organization governing the Orthodox Jewish community, to refuse convert candidates three times. Judaism is not a converting religion. As the rabbi in charge of that department told me, you're fine the way you are. Why convert? On the phone, the rabbi was a humorous, smart guy, but serious at the same time. His role, and he told me this clearly, was to discourage me from converting. One of the ways to discourage me was to delay the process. I started attending my local shul right after I got back from Israel. I phoned the Beit Din in September, and the rabbi told me to email him an essay on why I wanted to convert. He agreed to see me in October 2006, and the main point of that meeting was, this process takes a minimum of two years, and you can't rush it. I had dressed formally for the first meeting, seeing that Orthodox women wore long skirts and long-sleeved tops. I also wore a hat, to which he commented, you don't have to cover your head until you're married. Ever since my message in Tzfat, I'd been reading books, eating kosher to the best of my understanding, and keeping Shabbat, meaning I didn't work or create new things, like turn on a light switch or cook, from sundown Friday night till sundown Saturday. I told the rabbi this, and he still wanted to know, but why Judaism? Why had my guides told me to convert? I'd pondered it. I was working with so much ethereal, invisible energy every day as a spirit guide interpreter, I figured I needed a strong container, a house with thick walls. Judaism had specific rituals and prayers for everything, from opening your eyes in the morning to washing your hands to walking through a doorway. My guides must think I need that structure. I explained that to the rabbi who liked the strong house analogy. He said, yes, Judaism isn't called a church or a congregation, but rather the house of Israel. He agreed to let me start classes in March 2007. Fast forward then to November 2007 and picture me, no jeans, only skirts, scanning each product at the grocery store for the kosher marking, saying my blessings before and after eating each snack, hosting Shabbat dinners at my house, attending shul almost every Friday night and Saturday morning. I can follow along with the service, although it's mostly in Hebrew. I was so proud of myself. Have you ever set a goal and met it and patted yourself on the back? I had followed instructions to the letter and the conversion was rolling along. I met with the rabbi and asked him for a recommendation to study at a yeshiva in Jerusalem, 
a women's college for Judaic studies, for two weeks. He wrote me the recommendation, but added on his refrain of restraint, you're not finished till you're finished. Two years minimum. I practically giggled because the end seemed so near. I arrived in Jerusalem for the second time on December 22, 2007. I started classes and fell right in step with the young women in level 1A, just above the kindergarten class called Taste of Torah. In 1A, we puzzled our way through translations of the book of Genesis, reading the Hebrew out loud and trying not to peek at the English. My study partners were a quick-talking New Yorker and a classical musician from the UK. We enjoyed working together. I really felt right in my element. I was having a wonderful time when the balloon burst. Have you ever watched a child inflating a balloon? He concentrates, he focuses, he might splutter a bit. The balloon grows bigger and bigger. The writing on the outside stretches. Suddenly, the balloon outstretches its capacity and it pops. All the air he'd been trying to keep inside that container is now outside, mixed in with all the normal air. One morning, we were translating the line Genesis 29:10. Jacob is looking for his wife, Rachel, and he encounters shepherds standing by a well covered by a large stone. Demonstrating his strength, Jacob alone rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flocks. Rachel was shepherding. When we reached the word rolled, I said out loud to my study partners, Oh, that's G-L-G-L, gul-gul the same root as the word reincarnation. Just then, a bell sounded in my head, a tiny bell, like an oven alarm sounding, the cake is baked. I felt similarly baked, as in done, finished. All the air I had kept in the balloon was now mixed with all the outside air. Suddenly, everything was sacred. The classroom started to glow. My classmates looked angelic, holy, Later, in bed, I had a dialogue with my guides. You mean I spent the last year and a half eating only kosher food and keeping Shabbat only to find out that this is not how I'm going to live the rest of my life? Their reply only made me laugh. Learning to read Hebrew is hard. You never would have pushed yourself to this depth if you were only dabbling. Ah, they were right. I gave a big sigh and said, so what's next? My ears heard a river. My nose smelled fresh running water and a bonfire, and the air felt moist, as in a forest. Shamanism. It incorporates everything. January 2008, Jerusalem, Israel. Child of God, child of life. Right after New Year's, my classes were finished. I checked into Hotel Zion, yes, really, Hotel Zion, near Ben Yehuda Square. Ben Yehuda was a real person, a founder of modern Israel, but thanks to my newly acquired Hebrew, I see that Ben means son or son of. Yehuda means I will thank God. Thank in Hebrew is hoda'ah and can also be translated as to recognize, to admit, and even to confess. Yehuda in my English Standard Version Bible is Judah and is translated as I will praise God. I am a child, and as such, I confess and admit that I can't do everything by myself. I need help. I, too, am a child of the Most High. I recognize God as my creator and my king. I thank God for the help I receive every day. Now, here's another example of that help. After settling into Hotel Zion, I wrote the chapters of this book about Delphi and Bolivia but I felt the place descriptions weren't vivid enough, so I walked down the street to the cyber cafe and I googled images. Under a photo of Delphi, somebody had written the caption, The Navel of the World. That triggered a deep memory for me, and I reckoned our art history professor had explained it to us at the time. So I googled images of Navel of the World, and to my shock, I found the following list of places. Delphi, Rome, and Jerusalem. Then I remembered that in the ruins of Teotihuacan, Mexico, during the first week I had spent with my South African boyfriend, he and I had stood on a stone platform called the Center of the World. Hmm, I felt guided, so I googled the phrase Navel of the World, and I found Joseph Campbell's book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, which I had never read. Campbell said the hero goes on a journey, 
and travels inward to the navel and dies, coming out as his new self. In each of my journeys I have died, and I have been reborn, taking on new names and new occupations. I believe that these identity transformations are serving a higher purpose for my own incarnation. What's next for me? I know and I don't know. Now that I can do readings by phone and by Skype, I can be virtually anywhere. Wherever God leads me, I will go. What's next? February 2008, Johannesburg, South Africa. What is next? The word religion comes from the root lig and is connected to the word link. You can think of it as a ligament, something that connects. So religion means reconnecting, in this case, to the source. I think it's time to ask the question again, what about the pagans? Now I'm called to study shamanism. The orthodox teachings from the world's great schools of wisdom have taught me form, and I now need to find a balance by stepping toward essence. I've learned the grammar, and now I need to go have conversations. At the moment, I'm not practicing any specific religion, but I feel very connected to the source. So I'd like to make up a new word. I am religious. My prayer for you is that you enter into conversations with your own guides, find your grammar, and reveal your essence. May God bless you. This has been a recording of Guided, How to Communicate with Your Spirit Guides, written and narrated by Shannon Walbrand, published by Graysonian Press and HeartSpace Books in 2008, recorded and produced by Marcon in 2013. For more information, please go to www.spiritguidance.net.